turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. City WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at letstalkfaith.com. Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. I'll never forget the fellow who led me to Christ. I didn't know it at the time. He was sitting in my dorm room and I opened the door and the lock jutted out and cut my wrist rather severely. And being raised on the streets of Brooklyn, New York, I had some language that was from the streets of Brooklyn, New York, and I just let it all out. I saw when I opened the door that my Christian friend was standing there, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God convicted me deeply, and I had never known anything quite like this as a Christian. And I looked and I turned to him and I said, I shouldn't have said that, should I? Now, before... Maybe two weeks before that, I could have said that, and nothing would have bothered me about that. But when you become a Christian, if you don't refrain from fleshly things, you are going to be miserable. Peter calls it a war. And the Greek word for war means it's a military campaign. World War III is raging inside of you whenever you battle like that. Paul says in Galatians 5.17, For the flesh sets its desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Welcome to Verse by Verse, where our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff, has been teaching us from the book of 1 Peter. As we begin our program today, we're going to take a little detour into the book of Galatians, chapter 5, where Pastor Steve is going to explain the deeds of the flesh. Now, this is a very important lesson today, and if you're not able to listen to all of it, please get over to versebyverseradio.org and look for our archives link. There you can catch the part of the program you may have missed. Now, why is it so important for us to understand the deeds of the flesh, and why should they not be a part of our lives? Good question. I want to let Pastor Steve answer that today. But let me say this much. Eternity hangs in the balance. Now, let's get into today's verse-by-verse program. Because we're strangers, because we're outsiders, because we are not citizens of this world permanently, we are to refrain from what others can do. When we hear the term fleshly lust, too many times we think of sexual sins and bodily sins, but that's not all there is. I want you to turn your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. You'll see verses 19 through 21. You'll see that's not all, although that's part of it. That's not all that fleshly sins are. Galatians chapter 5. Now the deeds of the flesh, verse 19, are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, but it's also idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these of which I forewarn you as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the flesh. 
And he says that you are to refrain from these things. When you became a Christian, you received another nature. You have God's nature within you. An unsaved person doesn't. And when you do certain things that you wanted to do before, you become miserable. I'll never forget the first time shortly after I was converted at the University of South Florida. I'll never forget the fellow who led me to Christ. I didn't know it at the time. He was sitting in my dorm room, and I opened the door, and the lock jutted out and cut my wrist rather severely. And being raised on the streets of Brooklyn, New York, I had some language that was from the streets of Brooklyn, New York, and I just let it all out. I saw when I opened the door that my Christian friend was standing there, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God convicted me deeply, and I had never known anything quite like this as a Christian. And I looked and I turned to him and I said, I shouldn't have said that, should I? Now, before, maybe two weeks before that, I could have said that, and nothing would have bothered me about that. But when you become a Christian, if you don't refrain from fleshly things, you are going to be miserable. Peter calls it a war. And the Greek word for war means it's a military campaign. World War III is raging inside of you whenever you battle like that. Paul says in Galatians 5.17, For the flesh sets its desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. He illustrates this in Romans 7. He says, The things that I want to do, I can't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I keep doing. It's a battle. It's nothing new to us. I'm not telling you anything that you haven't heard before. Unsaved people can do certain things and it doesn't bother them. They don't have the Spirit of God within them, convicting them or showing them that he's grieved. I remember the greatest battle I, I ever had in my life, and this is just another illustration of this. When I lived in Miami, my parents had a very close friend who had, at that time, recently had a heart attack, and I had never shared the gospel with them. Oh, he knew I was a religious fanatic, but I had never shared with him the word of God. And so I can remember one day I just had this immense burden to share with him, but I'm a coward by nature, and so I decided to excuse that in my mind. I, you know, certainly this wasn't the right time to tell him, but the Spirit of God kept impressing it upon me. He's just had a heart attack. You're going to be going back to school. You don't know when you'll see him again. He may die and you won't see him. And I said, but I can't. What will he think of me? And the Spirit of God kept impressing upon me to go and share with him. And there was a battle raging. It was a military campaign within me. In case you're wondering, I did go and share with him. And he was very open to the gospel. And I thought, why did I get all troubled about it? But this is what happens. The spirit and the flesh just wage war against each other. And the Christian who doesn't abstain, and we're talking about a desire now, but gives in to that continually, is guilt-ridden, he's frustrated, he's jealous of others because they don't give in, he's critical. You ever meet a person who always has a spiritual chip on their shoulder? Well, it comes from this. There's something wrong, and you only see the outside, but there's something wrong inside. He's prone to excuses. Many times he has physical problems. Headaches, we're not saying that everyone has a physical problem. This is the reason, but someone can have headaches, stomach aches, strain, fatigue, all because they are not refraining from sins. And it could be attitudes. It could be actions and attitudes. Now, that's the negative that Peter says. But then he goes on to say, the positive way a stranger is to behave is verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. I had a friend at Moody who warned me that this ought to be my life's verse at Moody, since I was one of the few Jews there. But that's not what Peter means. He doesn't mean Gentiles in the sense of all Gentiles. He means unbelieving pagans. Keep your conversation or behavior or conduct honest or good. 
In some of our versions, it says, keep your conversation honest. The word means behavior. Conversation was a word that they used in the 17th century, which at that time did mean conduct, but in our day and age, it just means talk. He is not talking just about keeping your talk excellent. He says, keep your whole behavior good or excellent. Now, the words for good, there are two Greek words for good. One means good in quality, but that's not the word used here. The word here means not only good in quality, but also lovely, winsome, fine, attractive, something that's beautiful, something that's fine and lovely. What Peter is saying is that a Christian's conduct ought to be so lovely, so pure, so fine, so morally excellent that the slanders of unbelievers will simply be put to shame. They'll see that there's no validity there. It'll prove to be false by your conduct. There's a German philosopher named Hein who said this, you show me your redeemed life and I will be inclined to believe in your redeemer. If you show me your life and you say that this is why you're a believer, I may believe in your God. But unfortunately, the world looks at us and says, they're no different than we are. They have the same attitudes about money. They're just as greedy as I am. They have the same attitudes about covetousness. They lust. They do all kinds of things. They have the same attitude about their job. They complain on their job. They're critical of others. They gossip. They slander. Why bother believing what they have to say? They're no different than I am. Alexander McLaren, that great expositor of Scripture, said this, The world takes its notions of God most of all from the people who say they belong to God. They read us a great deal more than they read the Bible. They see us. They only hear about Jesus. The world watches to see what kind of a Christian you are. You know, you may not realize it, and I know I don't realize it, but people are watching. You may think nobody's watching me, but people are watching. All you have to do is slip one time, and they'll tell you. But people are watching you on your jobs. If you're in school, they're watching you. While you're at church, people who are here are taking notice of your life. And they stumble when you stumble. And they're encouraged when you walk with God. I don't know who they are, and I'm not thinking of anything in specifics, but I know that people are watching. Everyone here has somebody watching them, and many people. And your Christian life is being read, whether you realize it or not. And when you slip, all kinds of criticisms come. The world watches. There was a pastor in England one time who got on a bus. The bus driver handed him back extra change. This is a true story. He handed him back extra change. He gave him too much money, and when the man went down to his seat, he sat down, he noticed it. He had a battle all the while that that bus was going on what he should do with that extra money. But he decided the right thing to do was to go and return it to the bus driver. And when the bus stopped and he had to get off, he went to the bus driver and he said, you gave me too much change. And the bus driver said, I know. He said, you know, why did you do that? He said, well, he said, I was in your congregation last week when you preached on honesty. And I wanted to see if you practice what you preached. I'll tell you, the world is watching. But too often the case is a Christian ripping someone off in business, as we said this morning, talking brash and abrasive to someone losing our tempers, cutting in line in a store, yelling at somebody from our car, only to notice that there's somebody who you sat next to in church the other week. I heard of a pastor this happened to. Being rude, stubborn, all kinds of things like this. One thing that stands out in my mind, a number of years ago, a number of years ago, Michelle went to buy something in a store, an item that she really needed at that time. She needed it very fast. As a matter of fact, we went to a store and there was a young girl there who said, we're all out of that, but we'll order it. 
They said, well, we'll call you and tell you when it's in. A few days went by, and there was no merchandise that she needed, and so she called the store. She said, where is this that you said you would get in? They said, oh, we'll have to get back with you. Apparently, the sales girl made a mistake, or something was messed up in the order, and they made that sales girl call Michelle on the phone and apologize to her. Now, my wife had the choice of whether to blast that young girl and be rude to her or to accept it as the will of God and be sweet and keep a Christian testimony. Well, shortly after that, there was a young couple in this church. They were about to get married, and I had to do some counseling with them. And guess who that young girl was? It was Mary Whitlock, who is now my secretary. And just the other day, Michelle and I were talking about it, about this incident. Michelle said, you know, I don't remember what I said to her. I hope I said the right thing. As a matter of fact, just last night, I said, Mary, do you remember that incident? Because I couldn't use this illustration <laughs> if Michelle blew it. I couldn't. I could show you the grace of God. And I said, do you recall what she said? Did she blow it on the phone? And she said, no, she was very sweet. And I thought, I can use it. But you see, you never know who you're going to run into. Now, we don't treat people fine because we think they're going to be our secretaries or they're going to go to this church. But you don't know who you're dealing You don't know who's watching. Now, what if on the phone we had said, listen, you really ought to know how to run a business better than this and hung up. What kind of a testimony would that be? The world is watching. When you step out of this church, you are stepping into a mission field. Be nice to have it on the door. Enter now into the world and preach the gospel. You are stepping out into a mission field and people are watching you. How you conduct yourself in business, your attitude, your actions, all these things, people are watching. Now he goes on to say that you behave excellent so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, what is Peter saying? Peter is saying this. He's saying that, listen, some of them, by your behavior and the word of God dealing with them and the spirit of God, some of them are going to come to Christ because you have been the kind of witness that you should be with your life and the word of God has met them where they are. And on the day of visitation, when God deals with them, they're going to be saved. And part of the things that God has used is your life. When he says the day of visitation, he is not speaking of judgment because unbelievers don't glorify God. What he's talking about is that some will be saved. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good deeds and they glorify your Father who is in heaven. Why do they glorify him? Because they come to believe in that same God because of your life. It isn't enough to know the truth. You've got to live the truth and demonstrate the truth, especially in a world that hates you and slanders you and criticizes you, especially. Now, That's as a stranger in this world. But what about as a citizen? How are we to behave? Verses 13 through 17. While it's true that our citizenship is in heaven, we do have a temporary citizenship here on earth. And some, you see, might take it that since we're not of this world, we are not to obey the laws of this world. We're to disregard the government and their authorities over us because we're strangers, aliens, pilgrims. Do you know the Christians of that day and age were accused of hating the state? And I said this before, they were accused of hating Caesar and not being loyal to him. And they really weren't, except they were told by God to obey. Not that they had to agree with everything. And even today, we get pegged with the label of being anti-government. The New Testament teaches nothing about any kind of anarchy. You see, if the Christian of that day were simply to want to rebel against the government, all Christianity would be would be another political movement of which I see that we're getting into a dangerous area in our day and age. And if it was another political movement, it would be disastrous. We would forget that our job on earth is to 
face people with the word of God and confront them with the gospel. We're losing that. We need to remember that. And so Peter doesn't call them to change governments. He doesn't call them to change anything but to submit to the governments. But what does the New Testament teach? In Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The things that belong to Caesar, give it to him, taxes. Paul taught the same thing about government authorities, that they're sent by God to punish evildoers, and to keep law and order, and to help those who want to obey and live an honorable life. In First Peter chapter 2, verse 2, we're told that we're to pray for kings and those in authority. According to the New Testament, life is intended to be an ordered business. And the government, the civil government, is set up and appointed by God to provide and maintain that order. And we, as believers, are to submit to that. Look at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such, this is the will of God. You want to know the will of God? This is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. We're to submit willingly for the Lord's sake for a good testimony. But I hear people say things like, I'm not going to pay my taxes, or I have a good mind. If I had the courage to do it, I wouldn't pay my taxes. Because I can't stand where those taxes are going. And I don't like this law, so I'm not going to obey it. We think we've really got a problem in government. Do you know the people that Peter is writing to? Do you know who was in authority then? Do you know what Caesar reigns? It was Nero. And I did some research this week about Nero and a little bit about his life. I think he was the greatest, as far as my studies, was the greatest creep alive. This guy had to take lessons on being a creep. Listen to this. Not only did he put the Christians to death, and not only did he torture them, but tradition says, and I told you about him burning Rome, but tradition says this. I didn't know why he burnt Rome. Tradition says he burned Rome to clear ground for his new palace complex. It's reported that as Rome burned, he watched the progress of the flames from a high tower while chanting to his own lyre verses on the destruction of Troy. You think he was bad? Listen to this. He caused people's death who were politically a threat to him. He got an order from the Senate of Rome to put his own mother to death in order to please his mistress. Now, that's a creep. Now, not only that, he once proposed to a woman, this was his stepsister, and upon her refusal, he ordered her killed. He was immoral, being known to be a homosexual, as were many of the Caesars. He was so wicked that the early Christians thought that he would return as the Antichrist. Now, Peter says, you submit to the king. Who's the king? Nero. You obey him. You do what he says. And this was the governing authority of Peter's day. And he said, submit. Now, in our day, we have a little different situation, but the principle is the same. We have a democracy. We have a say, somewhat of a say, in making the laws. And once those laws, though, are established, we are to obey them. We are not to rebel. The Apostle Paul is a great example of one who submitted to the government. We're not going to go into all the details, but in Acts 24, before Felix, he submitted. In Acts 25, before Festus, he submitted. In Acts 26, before Agrippa, he submitted. And by the way, he was very respectful. And in Acts 28, as we said this morning, he said, I go to Rome. I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to Nero, who, by the way, later, history tells us that he was beheaded. Peter is an example of how submission to government and obedience to God are not in conflict. Someone usually thinks and will ask the question, but what about when the government tells you to do something that God's word is against? It would violate. I want you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. I want you to see something. Usually we just quote the verse, it's better to obey 
God than man. But I want you to see the background of this. Peter became a flaming evangelist after the day of Pentecost. After he received the Holy Spirit, he had the resources to turn from a chicken to someone who had courage. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 7, we're going to read a long passage, so you need to turn there. And when they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? The authorities. Now, this wasn't Rome, but this was the religious authorities of which Peter submitted himself to. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, remember they had healed a man, Peter and John, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, and by his name this man stands here before you in good health. And then he goes on to tell him about he is the stone which was rejected and so forth. We don't need to go over all of that. And then he says in in verse 12, he's salvation and so forth and no other name. Verse 13, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Perhaps the greatest compliment Peter and John had ever received. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to go aside out of the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. This was their command. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking the things which we have seen and heard. I want you to go to verse 29. They go back to their people, the church. They tell them about what happened, and this is part of their prayer. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak the word with all confidence. Now, they told them not to speak, but the people were praying, Lord, based on their threats, you take note of it. Now give them boldness to speak, just the opposite of what they commanded them. Now turn to Acts chapter 5, verse 17. But the high priest rose up, along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. Say, why were they critical? Jealousy. And they laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. Why? Because they were doing what they told them not to do. But an angel of the Lord during the night opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, go your way. Stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. In other words, they had a decision. Do we obey the authorities, or do we obey God? And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest and the associates had come, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the door. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside." Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, Behold, the men who you put in prison, they're standing in the temple and teaching the people exactly what you told them not to do, they're doing. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence. Notice, they submitted. They submitted and they didn't fight back. They didn't resist without violence, for they were afraid of the people lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they stood them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders 
not to continue teaching in this name, and behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, another great compliment, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than men. And look at verse 42. What are they doing after this? And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ or as the Messiah. What's the point? The point is, when the government and God are in conflict, and this is not something that takes place all the time, it is a rather infrequent thing. When the government or any authority tells you to do something that is a direct violation of the word of God, you obey God. But if there is no conflict, you obey your governing authorities. On today's verse-by-verse program, Pastor Steve left us with a very extensive explanation on how the Word of God is to be central in our lives. He used the story of the apostles who were told by the authorities that they could not teach in the name of Jesus. Well, we are to obey our government up to the point where it is in conflict with God's Word. We have more to talk about on that subject in the next verse-by-verse, so please plan to join us next time. And also, would you encourage a friend to tune in as well? We are living in very interesting times, and we need the guidance of God's Word and the Holy Spirit. This is Verse by Verse, a radio program, and it is a great way to feed your Christian life.